0: Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 1, the Bible says, "...therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed." You may have heard before like a preacher stand behind a pulpit and say, "...now God's really spoken to me about this. He's been really uh, speaking to my heart about this particular subject. I feel led of the Lord to preach on this subject this morning." And what that preacher is trying to do, at least in my estimation, because I've done it before... He's trying to draw specific attention to the the importance of the matter at hand. In other words, he's saying, now God's really been speaking to me about this, and I hope he speaks to you about it, so don't treat this as another Sunday. Don't treat this as another message. Treat this as something special, because this is God's message for me, through me, to you. And, And so he's trying to call a lot of attention to his message and to the the, the preaching of God's Word. Now, I would do that this morning. But if you pay attention there, Scripture does it itself. Amen. It's like the writer of Hebrews says here, he's doing that. Now, this is something we ought to pay great attention to. He says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Why? Lest at any time we should let them slip. The Bible says in verse number 2, For if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His own will. For unto the angels hath He not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Let us pray and we'll we'll begin this morning. Lord, I pray that you'll bless, help, Lord, as we open Scripture. And many of these verses are very difficult to understand and it's not so readily seen the message that the passage has. So, Lord, give me the ability to clearly communicate what the Scripture is saying this morning. And then as I begin to deliver the message, Lord, may the Holy Spirit speak to hearts And may you remove me and my influence from the message, but that the Holy Spirit would have complete reign in the service today. I ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the verse that I would like to focus on for the sermon today is verse number 3. And it says this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? We have a great salvation. And we ought not forget how great it is. And the reason we have such a great salvation is is so many reasons and really that's kind of what we're going to look at today but the verse in verse number 1 it says that we should give her- earnest heed to the things that we have heard. You know, like the, the hymn writer said, I love to tell the old, old story. It doesn't need to be more modernized or uh, uh, more uh, contemporary. It's an old, old story. And it's still as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. I have to be honest with you, there are churches on every corner meeting this morning. Some met yesterday, which is a little confusing, but that's just my opinion. But there's all sorts of things, uh, all sorts of churches that met today uh, that I promise do not major on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they major on all sorts of things. There's churches this morning that met, and the primary theme of their messages may have been... Uh, You know, if you'll serve God, He'll bless you. It's kind of a prosperity gospel, if you will. What they're doing is they're taking the emphasis off of Christ and placing it on a material gain and other such things like that. And yet we see in Scripture, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that really matter, the things of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We look in Scripture... And this verse says, lest at any time we should let them slip. The modern church is slipping on their importance and their emphasizing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's really three ways that we've let them slip. Number one, we've let them slip through corruption. The Bible told us that false teachers would come in and they would pollute the gospel of Jesus. The Bible says that uh, in Second Peter chapter 2, "...but there were false prophets among them, even as there shall be false teachers among you." And they would come in and they would preach damnable heresies, the Bible says. And this is happening in churches this morning. People that are well-meaning people and people that are sharp, cleverly spoken people, and yet they're, they're polluting the gospel of Jesus." This was one quote, I'll not tell you from uh, who said the quote, because I'm not up here to bash other preachers, but, but the quote is this. He says, in dealing with people for several years, thousands of people, one thing I can tell you is that 99% of people are not bad people. They may make poor choices, but deep down, they've got a good heart. And that sounds okay. And, and that's, the, the, that's the worry with false teachers is their messages are not so blatantly wrong or false. But the Bible teaches totally opposite of what this man said. In fact, the Bible says, For there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all become unprofitable. They have all gone out of the way. And the Bible doesn't teach what that man says. And you say, Brother Andrew, that's such a, a a small thing to really call a person out for. But that's what they do. They they change the very small things of the gospel. You see, it's just a small thing. Let me ask you this. I want you to imagine this morning that I have up here on this platform a glass of the best sweet tea you've ever had. Okay? For some, that's Chicken Express. For some, that's Laura Sears sweet tea. That's one of mine. Uh, but uh, But... Whatever it is, maybe your mom makes good sweet tea. Maybe your wife makes good sweet tea. Thank you, baby, for making my sweet tea, by the way. I appreciate that. She's getting really good at it. But, but you imagine the best glass of sweet tea that you've ever had sitting right up here. You know, the cup has the water droplets running down the side of it. And I mean, you want to take a big old sip. And you say, Brother Andrew, this isn't that big of a deal. Well, what if I took that glass of sweet tea and I added just a little bit of bleach to it? Would you be as excited to drink that at that point? And What if I put just a, a teaspoon in it? Maybe that would be too much for you. Well, maybe I were just to put a few drops in there. Would that be too much for you? My point is this. At what point does polluting the gospel become too much? And, and the gospel has slipped in modern day Christianity because we have corrupted the truth that it is. Number one, it's been corrupt. uh, Number one, it slipped because of corruption. Number two, it slipped because of compromise. Now, some people have not just blatantly changed the message, but they have weakened the message. What we did years ago, and this was such a bad choice, but we made the church just another brick and mortar retail store. You say, what do you mean? I mean this businesses and companies get advertising agencies around tables and they discuss how they can make their business more identifiable, more uh, marketable, and therefore they're trying to get foot traffic in the door. And years ago, that's what we did to the church. We took the church and instead of having meetings about how we can actually reach people with the gospel, we started having meetings about how we can get people in the doors of the church. How can we influence more people? How can we bring them in? And so what they learned in doing this was the message of the gospel is quite a confrontational one. I don't know if you've noticed. Anytime you look at somebody and you say, you are a dirty, rotten sinner, that doesn't go over too well. Can you imagine the next time you go into Walmart, that little greeter there standing on their rubber pad, you know, so their feet don't hurt and they got their vest on, they're like, hi, you're a terrible human being. (laughs) Well, thank you as I enter Walmart. You know, that'd be awful. But that's what we do. People come to our church and we want them to sit in our pews and then we have to deliver them the first point in the gospel, which is, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so what we did is we made the church more marketable. We made it consumer-centered instead of Christ-centered. And we took things like the blood out, because the blood's kind of gross. And the blood kind of uh, doesn't speak of happy thoughts or good thoughts. It's not a very attractive message. We took words out like sinner. You know, I like the hymn that says, for such a worm as I. We, we, We changed that word too, by the way. The problem is, is some not only corrupted the gospel, some didn't corrupt it as far as polluting it with false doctrine and heresy. Some just weakened the message so that it has no actual power. Imagine that glass of sweet tea this morning. It's your favorite sweet tea in the world, man. It's right here. I just want you to imagine me now taking that sweet tea and adding another bottle of water to it. That wouldn't taste good at all. Why? Because it's watered down. That's what they did. They took the gospel message and they watered it down. There's three ways that the gospel is slipping in Christianity today. Number one, through corruption. Number two, through compromise. And number three, and this is probably where most of us are actually, complacency. Complacency. There's nothing wrong with the way that we believe in the gospel. There's nothing wrong with what we believe about the gospel. But for some of us, we've been saved so long, the gospel no longer has the effect in our life that it used to. I mean, we we used to be moved to tears by certain songs. They used to speak to our heart and it just was our story and it was our message wrapped up in lyric and melody and and they used to break us. But now we listen to that same song and we can't even muster to sing along with it. What's happened? Well, I'll tell you what's happened. We've grown complacent with the greatness of the gospel of Jesus. What this is, is it's that sweet tea. It's the best sweet tea you've ever had. But we leave it sitting out for days and days and days and days. I don't know if you know this, but after the sugar and sweet tea has set in there a while, it begins to ferment, begins to rot. The tea becomes bitter. And that's where most of us are, actually. But, But it's such a great salvation... It's a great salvation. Scripture says the unspeakable riches of God's grace. We can't even put into terms how great the gospel is. And yet yet we have trouble even getting excited when someone sings about the blood. or, Or we have trouble shedding a tear when someone preaches a message about the cross of Jesus. It's just not the same today as it used to be years ago for us. We've grown complacent with the message of the gospel. Have you ever been walking through a place and you smell an aroma that takes you back to another place and time in your life? I will never forget years and years I worked at a horse ranch. Uh, we were I was at a horse cutting farm, so every day, every evening, I would walk into the barn and I would just smell wood chips. And there was an additional element there that I'll not mention in the sermon, but but... It just, the horse barn had a smell, and, and it, it wasn't bad actually, it might seem bad at first, but the, the horses, and it just made this aroma, and it just stuck in my nostrils, and it's like, it owns a compartment of my brain so that now when I go to like uh, Will Rogers Coliseum and they're having a big show or something up there, I walk in and it's like I'm taken back to those summers working in those horse, at that horse farm. When, uh, as I got a little older, we would go to Tennessee to visit my Granny B. And her house used to be way out in the boondocks. I mean, just country, 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 until they built a road right through her property. And and they brought in all sorts of stuff in there. They brought in chilies and, And I'll never forget, right, I mean, just a couple hundred yards from her front door, they put a Lowe's in there. Not And we didn't even get the front of the lows. We got the back of the lows, you know, like the ugly side of the lows. I'll never forget as, as just I was there a few years being out there in the yard of my granny bee, and this is what you'd hear. Uh, we need to lift it all three. <laughs> and this became the sound of my granny bee's house as you hear the intercom announcements. And uh, it's just now anytime I'm at Lowe's and I hear something like that take place, what happens? I, I go back to my granny bee's front porch. You ever been in a place or seen something or heard something or smelt something that took you back to a place? Here's the purpose of the sermon this morning. Let's go back to the place where the gospel was great. Let's go back there. Because it is great, and here are four reasons why it's great. Number one, the first reason why the gospel is great is because it's great in restraint. Verse number two says this, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? Now, that's a difficult passage to understand, but there is so much depth to what is being said. In verse number 2, it says the words spoken by angels. That is referring to the Old Testament law given to Moses. Stephen refers to it in his sermon to the uh, uh, council. He says in uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 53, "...who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it." In other words... The the law of God came to man. And the Bible is saying that if all of the law and all of us received a just recompense of reward, in other words, if we, the law being our schoolmaster, the law being our oppressor, if we got what we deserved, how shall we escape? And that's one reason that the gospel is so great, is because we are all guilty before the law. In fact, Jesus said it like this, that uh, a man that uh, hates his brother has pretty much murdered him in his heart already. He says in his Sermon on the Mount, he says that uh, a man that looketh on a woman to lust, uh, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, so we understand that when the Bible says about the Ten Commandments that you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not lie, you shall not steal, all of these things, we understand that those came with a condemnation because we are all guilty under that law. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, For now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You're guilty before God. And you say, but I'm not as guilty as somebody else. You know what the Bible says in the book of of 1 John? It says that if we've offended the law in one point, we are guilty of all. So we may say, oh, I'm not as bad as somebody else, but God looks at us, and if you've ever messed up one time, if you ever stole a cookie from the cookie jar, if you ever did anything wrong, yesterday we're at Bailey's birth- birthday party, and she came up, Amy had warned her all day, you stay out of the cupcakes, you stay out of the cupcakes, and, and uh, Bailey come up to Amy, and she had blue icing on her mouth, and Amy goes, did you get in the cupcakes? And she goes, uh-uh. See Bailey's guilty. She lied. She stole. But but God doesn't just look at it as that. He says you are guilty under the law. And whether or not you're the worst sinner in the world or the best sinner in the world, the whole weight of the law is on your shoulders. And that's why the gospel's great, is because in that situation, Christ died for the ungodly. In fact, the Bible says, for when we were yet without strength, it's as if we were burdened under the weight of a law that we could not bear. And the Bible says, for when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's why the gospel's great, because it is great in its restraint. The Bible says, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. I'll never forget, one day I was in the bedroom and I heard Bailey scream at the top of her lungs. And usually I don't care too much about that because Amy's around. But this day she wasn't. It was just me and the girls around. So I said, I better get up and go fix this. And I walk out and Bailey's holding her head. And Caitlin's got her hand on Bailey's head. And in this hand, Caitlin is holding a hammer. (laughs) And I mean like a legit work Hammer. Not like a Bob the Builder pretend hammer. Like, like daddy left his hammer out and uh, they got into it. And Bailey's screaming and she said, ah! And Caitlin was like, oh, this ain't good. <laughs> and I walked out of the door of my bedroom and I saw this situation going on. And I have to be honest with you, I immediately got very angry. And the first thought went through my mind was, how am I going to punish Caitlin? I know what I'll do. I'll hit her with the hammer. (laughs) I'm thankful to say that cooler heads prevailed, and I did not hit her with a hammer. But, But if you were God, and you look down on a world, the state of the world that you and I live in, the one that on the... 5 o'clock news, they have to look for stories about dogs and cats just to make us feel like the whole world has not gone to pot. If you were God and you saw these mass shootings taking place, and these riots and these rallies for such ungodly and unjust causes taking place, if you were God and you had the hammer, what would you do? And yet God, in His grace, sits on His sovereign throne and waits for people to come to Him. The whole time drawing them unto Himself. The whole time presenting gospel witnesses and gospel messages. That is why the gospel is great. It is great because if we got what we deserved, we'd all be in hell right now. The gospel is great in its restraint. Number two, it is great in its recognition. Now, verse number three says, this gospel, this salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. You see, the gospel and the plan of salvation was not the the wisdom of man. It did not begin in some man's heart as many other religions did. It began by the Lord. And the Bible says, and it was confirmed unto us, by them that heard him. So those disciples, John the Baptist, these men that were his ambassadors of the gospel, they had heard his words and they began to teach what he had taught them. The Bible says in verse number four, God also bearing them witness. They had God's stamp of approval on them with, the Bible says, signs and wonders and diverse miracles and the gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. You see, God put his stamp of approval on men that were preaching the gospel. They would go around, and, and I want you to understand this. When they did miracles, it was never for the purpose of impressing people. Helping blind men see and lame men walk, their goal was not that, so that everybody could say, Man, did you see what Peter did? The goal in doing those miracles was to prove the authority and the authenticity of the message that they preached. Jesus fed the 5,000 so that he could feed them not only physically but also spiritually. The miracles have always only been present so that the power and the authority of the gospel could be validified. And so we see that God did that for men. He did that for Peter and John as they're walking into the temple at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3. There's a lame man over there and he's begging for money. And Peter and John stop and they say, hey, they were, they were Baptists because they said, silver and gold have I none. They, they had no money, so we know they were Baptists. And they, they said, silver and gold have I none, but hey, I've got something for you. Such as I have, give I thee in the name of the Lord of Jesus Christ rise up and walk. And that day, that man who had been crippled from his mother's womb, the Bible says, leaping up stood. Now that's just good English language. Why would you want to take that out of the Bible? He leaping up stood. (laughs) And he's jumping around and he jumps into the temple. He's just excited about life. And the Bible says everybody recognized that it was the guy that sat at the beautiful gate. There's another story in Jesus' ministry where there was a man who had been blind from birth. And this man, uh, uh, one day Jesus was passing by, the disciples asked him, Jesus, who sinned? This man's parents or him? Why is he blind? Did he sin or did his parents? And Jesus said, No, he didn't. He is not blind because he sinned or his parents sinned. This is the way it is so that the Son of Man can receive glory. And so what he does is he heals that man and he takes clay, rubs it in his eyes, he sends him to the pool of Siloam, he washes him off. He returns and everybody says, hey, are you the guy? Are you the guy that was blind? And he says, yeah, I'm the guy. It's, it's hilarious because the authorities, the Pharisees, they don't believe him. In fact, they bring his parents in. And they're like, is this your son, and has he been blind since birth? And his parents are like, he's a grown adult, ask him. And they won't answer. They're like, he's of age, ask him. And then they finally ask him, and they're so angry that Jesus actually did this. This is what they say. They say, give God the praise. Don't you dare give it to Jesus, but give God the praise. And they say this, we know that this man is a sinner. Good luck proving that. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. (laughs) And everybody looks at him and sees the power of God manifested in his life. He was blind and now he sees. You see, God's gospel has always had his stamp of authority on it. You say, Brother Andrew, God's not in the healing business like that. Man, look around you. You think all these people wanted to be in church on Sunday morning where they came from? What you look at around you this morning is you look at people who were drunkards. You look at people who were riotous. You look at people who lived lives that did not please God. And yet somehow the great gospel of Jesus Christ changed their life. And it did not change them externally. It changed them internally. Something that psychology cannot do. Something that medicine cannot do. It's something that only Jesus can do. And the power of the gospel manifests in our lives outwardly so that everyone can see. It's great in its recognition. You see, when Jesus touches you, you can't help but see Jesus on you. The Bible says, Behold, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Jesus changes people. The gospel is great in its restraint. It's great in its recognition. Recognition number three. The gospel is great in its reward. Verse number 6, the Bible says, But one in a certain place testified, saying, and this is a, an overwhelming thought to consider, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Who are we that the sovereign God of the worlds and the universes would care about us? This is a passage quoted from Psalm chapter 8. The Bible says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Psalm chapter 144 echoes these thoughts and says, Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Job, in the middle of his trial, says it like this, What is man that thou shouldest magnify him, that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him, and that thou shouldest visit him every morning and try him every moment? What are we that God would care about us? We're nothing special. This verse, obviously, these verses we read in Hebrews, they refer to the fact that when God created the wonderful world that we live in, He looked at Adam and Eve and said, I will give you dominion over everything that I've created. You, should, you, you have dominion over the animals, you have dominion over the land, you have dominion. And the psalmist says, what is man that you've given me anything? Who am I that you would look at me and act as if I have some authority over your creation? Who am I? We get this complex like the whole world revolves around us. But the truth is, we aren't anything on this rock we live in. I was trying to do a little research. And I found out that in 1995, scientists discovered... Uh, kind of an anomaly in the sky, they they found one area of sky right next to the little dipper that was exceedingly darker than the surrounding sky. And so the reason was because the, the light, the overflow light from the surrounding stars was not affecting it at this particular time of year, at this particular moment. So for 10 days in 1995, scientists focused the Hubble telescope on this one particular spot. For 10 consecutive days, the Hubble telescope recorded about 150 hours of of film on this one spot. They began to review what they had taken pictures of, and they could not believe what they had seen. As they began to study it, they discovered in this one spot over 1,500 galaxies that they had never seen before. And for reference, that would be like you taking a ballpoint pen. The area in which they're studying would be like you taking a ballpoint pen, going outside tonight, holding it up to the sky, at arm's length away from you, and you were to just focus in on the very tip of that pen, the the ballpoint of that pen... If you were to just hold that out, that ballpoint would make up about the area that they studied. That they discovered 1,500 new galaxies in. That ballpoint pen would represent about one two millionth of the actual sky. So if you were to just do a little math, and I like how everything's an even number with scientists. Have you ever known that? We were born 300 billion years ago. But if you were to just do a little math and say they discovered 1,500 galaxies in this one area, that only makes up one two millionth of the night sky. If you were to do a little math, extrapolate that out. If it stayed consistent across the sky, there are over 3 billion unknown galaxies and that sounds outrageous. See, when numbers get that big, we don't even know how to comprehend how big that is. I mean, unless you've seen, you know, Brother John Ringold's checking account. Then you have an idea. Uh, but, but we struggle to even understand how big three billion is. But let me tell you this. We are in the Milky Way galaxy. Scientists cannot, account, cannot count the amount of stars in our galaxy alone but they estimate it to be over 100 billion stars in our galaxy. And science assumes that there are over 3 billion other galaxies. They, they, they're talking, if you do any research, science is talking about trying to map out 1% of our night sky And trying to count how many stars are in just that 1% of sky. They can't even do that. And yet the Bible says about God in Psalm 147, He telleth the number of the stars. See, God doesn't only have the numbers of your head counted. Not only does He have the dust of the ground counted. He knows how many stars there are. In fact, the Bible says, He calleth them all by their names. I like the services where you can buy a star and name it. How ridiculous is that? (laughs) Property in Joshua is going for $35 a foot and we're going to buy a star? God says they already have names. I've named them. The Bible says this about our God. He measures the waters in the hollows of His hand. You know, earth is over 80% water. And the Bible says God holds that all right here in in His cupped hand and He meted out the heavens with a span. All those three billion galaxies we're talking about, it's right there in God's span. The Bible says, He comprehendeth the dust of the earth in a measure, and He weighed the mountains in the scales, and the hills in a balance. The Bible says, The heaven is the Lord's throne, and the earth is His footstool. I'm not trying to make you feel worthless this morning, I'm doing the opposite. I'm trying to tell you that a God who should not care about you does. And He cares about you so incredibly deeply that He is willing to send His Son to die on the cross for you. That is why the gospel is great. Because it is great in its reward. God loved you enough to give you a home in heaven. You own property in heaven, man. That's how much God loves you. It's great in its reward. So number one, it's great in its restraint. Number two, it's great in its recognition. Number three, it's great in its reward. Number four, I would be remiss if I did not speak on this. It's great in its redeemer. See, that's what sets the gospel apart from every other religion. Every other religion was started by men who were just men. It was, it was a man trying to gain fame or popularity. If you do any research on a lot of religions, most of them are motivated because of money. You, you do some research on the, the, uh, the founder of Scientology. You know what he said two and, a half years before, uh, two and a half years before he founded Scientology? If you want to get rich, start a religion. Two and a half years before he founded the religion. And yet our Redeemer was different. Our Redeemer was special. Our Redeemer was God. The Bible says this, notice this, I don't want you to miss it. Verse number 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now you pay attention to that language because that seems very odd. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. How could the creator of the angels ever become secondary to the angels? In order of authority, how could he ever take a lower esteem or place of honor than them? Because I want you to flip back over to Hebrews chapter 1. We've, we find something very different than what chapter 2 says. I want you to notice in verse number 1 of chapter number 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So He used to, he used to use men like Elijah, Jeremiah, prophets. And He would speak to men like that. But in verse number 2 it says, Hath in these last days spoken unto, unto us by His Son. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse number four, this is what I want you to pay attention to. Being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You keep on reading down, you'll find in verse number 8, one of the most unique passages of Scripture, where God the Father calls God the Son, God. He says in verse number 8, But, the Son, but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of... Of thy kingdom. So what gives you have in chapter number two, Jesus say or the Bible saying about Jesus, he was made a little lower than the angels. But chapter one says the exact opposite, doesn't it? He has received a name much more excellent than the angels. So what 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 what's the deal? Why why is it different? This is the reason it's different, is because God who was so much higher than the angels, took upon himself the form of a servant, who being equal with God, thought it not not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross here's why the gospel's great is because God the eternal god of the universe left His throne in heaven to come to be born in a manger to live 33 sinless years and die the most excruciating death anyone has ever lived. There is no other religion with a Creator like that. There is no other religion where the the, the starter of that religion died in the form of a man but still being God. He's different. The Bible says looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The Bible says that we should look unto Him. Why? Well, because uh, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of God, at the throne of God. Jesus did what no other could do when He saved your soul from hell. He's just different. He's special. God loved you enough. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Can you imagine being the centurion that placed the hand of Jesus on the cross, that then nailed the, drove the nail through the hand of God? Could you imagine being the centurion that lifted his cross high above the world? Could you imagine being the centurion there that, ran a spear through God's side. That's what God did for you. See, our gospel, the gospel is great not because of us. The gospel is great because of Him. I hope this morning as we've spoken about these things, I hope this morning that maybe you began to sense the greatness of your salvation again. Maybe you you were encouraged, maybe you, your mind went back to the place where it was your altar and some soul winner took your knee or, or, or helped you take a knee and, and, and pray a prayer before God and you felt salvation like you had never felt it before. I hope that you smelled the greatness of salvation. I hope that you heard or saw the greatness of salvation this morning. I hope you went back to the place where grace made a difference in your life. The other day, we were trying to figure out where we wanted to go for lunch, and Charlie and Amanda recommended a place. I had not been there. I know that they had sponsored our golf tournament, so I was more than willing to try it. And they said, if we go there, though, you've got to try the dessert. And I was like, okay, I'm not much of a dessert guy. We go, we eat our food. The food was good. It was cheap, which was like my favorite part of food. Cheap food is best food, and... And so uh, it was good. And then they said, all right, can we get some funnel cake fries? And I've had funnel cake and I've had fries. But I've never had funnel cake fries and I didn't know what to expect. When it finally comes out, they place in front of us, it's kind of like a blooming onion had a baby with a funnel cake. And there is powdered sugar all over. You know, you get those funnel cakes at the state fair where it's like they're trying, there's a like a, a powdered sugar shortage or something. No, 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 man. It's like the guy accidentally spilt the whole bag on it. In fact, when you take a bite of this funnel cake fry, you have to cough because the powdered sugar is hitting you in the back of the throat. It's amazing. And what's so wonderful about this is they don't only bring out this funnel cake fries, which they do it in fries, so it's it's very easily shareable. They're two to three inches long. It's like a fry, but it's funnel cake, and they're crispier than a normal funnel cake, so it's not mushy. I mean, it's just so fantastic. But they bring you a big side of chocolate sauce, and it sounds good. It's better than what it sounds. I like chocolate, but like if I'm at the gas station, I'm not like, oh, candy bar, gotta have it. I I mean, chocolate's good, but I'm not crazy about chocolate. But something about this funnel cake fry with the powdered sugar dipped in that chocolate sauce is outstanding. It's unbelievable. As one of my professors in college would say, what a country. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is just fantastic. How many of y'all have ever had funnel cake fries in the room? No? So what you're doing is, you're, a couple, what you're doing is all of the rest of you are having to take my word about how great it is. And maybe you, maybe you believe me, maybe you don't. But most of you don't know what I'm talking about. And this morning, what a shame it would be if I preached an entire sermon about the greatness of the gospel of Jesus and there's somebody in the room that's just having to take my word for it. I'm sitting up here telling you about how great it is in its Redeemer. I'm sitting up here telling you how great it is in its reward and how how God had somehow in His mercy and His grace looked past your faults and failures and He found you and He loved you. And as my dad says, if you'd have been the only sinner in the world, He'd have come to this world and died for you. Jesus says, the whole reason He came to earth, the Son of Man is coming to seek and to save that which was lost. He came for you. And what a shame it would be is if I've spent 30 minutes this morning preaching a sermon and somebody in the back is just having to take my word for it. The Bible says this, today is the day of salvation. Don't leave this building today unless you remember how great salvation is. And if you've been saved for years and years and years, my friend, congratulations and I'm happy for you. But you ought to go back Back to the day when your salvation was fresh. And today I'm trying to stir you up by remembrance of that day. But if there's someone in here that has never made that decision to trust Jesus. Don't just take my word for it. Don't just take my word for it. But with all of my heart I'm praying that you will choose to trust Christ. It will be the best decision you ever made.